Daniel chapter 10, verse 5. Daniel writes, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen, whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of hoofbods. His body also was like beryl. His face had the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches, his hands and feet like the gleam of polished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a tumult or a roaring. Now I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. While the men who were with me did not see the vision, nevertheless a great dread fell on them, and they ran away to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision. Yet no strength was left in me, for my natural color turned to a deathly pallor, and I retained no strength. But I heard the sound of his words, and as soon as I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a deep sleep on my face, with my face to the ground. Then behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees, and he said to me, O Daniel, man of high esteem, understand the words that I am about to tell you, and stand up, for I now have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. And then he said to me, Do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding, on understanding this and on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard and I have come in response to your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for twenty-one days. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. What? What? Read on, verse 14. Now I have come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision pertains to the days yet future. And when he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and became speechless. And behold, one who resembled a human being was touching my lips. And then I opened my mouth and spoke and said to him who was standing before me, Oh, my Lord, as a result of the vision, anguish has come upon me, and I have retained no strength. For how can such a servant of my Lord talk with such as my Lord? As for me, there remains now, just now, no strength in me, nor has any breath been left in me. And then this one with human appearance touched me again and strengthened me. He said, O man of high esteem, do not be afraid. Peace be with you. Take courage. Be courageous. Now as soon as he spoke to me, I received strength. And I said, May my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. And then he said, Do you understand why I came to you? But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. So I am going forth, and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. However, I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of truth. Yet there is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces except Michael, your prince. Let's pray. (laughs) Wow, Lord. Amazing. We're reading along and suddenly you punch a hole into the physical realm and reveal to us things unseen. And so we thank You. And we desire not to gloss over this, Lord, but to truly pause and think about what this means. And not only to think in soul, but to receive in spirit what this means for us as Your people, as as saints, as followers of Jesus. What does this mean? How are we to respond? What are we to do with this? We relate somewhat, Lord, to Daniel in seeing these things and being in awe if we truly will stop and think about what's going on. So I pray this morning, both now and and in second service, that Your Holy Spirit will speak to us in such a way that our hearts will receive. And that we won't miss what you desire for us. That you would equip us in this time for days to come. However many are left. And help us to stand for you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I talked to my, uh, my folks on Thanksgiving morning. And my dad is a longtime fan of the Sunday comics. I remember even as a kid growing up, seeing Dad every Sunday morning there on the couch, you know, Bible on one side, Sunday comics on the other side. And he always loved to share them, and he would just laugh, and my mom never got them. 
you know, he would share one. She'd be like, I just don't think that's funny. And he'd be like, <laughs> anyway, he shared one with me the other day, Thanksgiving Day. And it's the, uh, the Daily Comic Dustin by Kelly and Parker. And in it, the main character, Dustin, who is uh, staying at home, I guess, after college, living back home with his parents. So a very timely uh, comic strip. Dustin, he sees a boy in the neighborhood walking home as he's taking out the trash. And he says, heading home for turkey and stuffing? And the boy says, oh, please spare me. Thanksgiving is a celebration of insincerity. And Dustin responds, No, it isn't. It's a day to reflect and to be grateful for all the... And the boy says, I know, I get it. But if everybody's so thankful for all they have, why is tomorrow the biggest shopping day of the year? (laughs) Well said. So how was your Black Friday? Is it good? Emily, did you get some good deals? Well, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to... Pick on you. I just know that your husband told me you were going to be. I'm sorry. (laughs) Pastor Rick Crawford seeking to diminish attendance at the Bridge Christian Fellowship on a weekly basis. Black Friday. The name itself. I know what it means on a ledger sheet, but have you seen? There's there's actually a place called www.blackfridaydeathcount.com. That is, that is set up to count the number of casualties and deaths that happen on Black Friday every year. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, I know. Woohoo! Happy Thanksgiving. This, uh, this death count thing, it's actually not as much as you might think, given the, the greed and avarice in the world today. But I think over the last uh, five, six years, that there have been four deaths as a result of Black Friday and another 76 injuries. So 80 people have been harmed on this shopping day. And I saw that and I thought about the comic strip and this whole attitude about Black Friday. And of course now Black Friday is spilling into Thanksgiving. And boy, you can get these deals now if you start Wednesday night at midnight. And and we can just kind of bowl over the whole issue of giving thanks to God as we're seeking to get more stuff that we really don't need. And it's probably going to end up in most of our closets by the end of the year anyway. And I thought, wow, you know what we need? This world needs a vision. This world needs a vision that is bigger than sales. This world, we need a vision of the heavenly realm. We need to see something bigger. This world needs a vision of Jesus Christ. And Daniel got it. Daniel, as we talked about last week, he got two visions. Vital to all of the prophecies of Daniel. In fact, I used to believe and think that Daniel chapter 9, the end of the chapter, was the key. I really think Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, and Daniel chapter 10, verses 5 through 7, those are the two pillars on which the entire prophecy hang. Why is that? Because those are the visions of Jesus. These are the two times where Daniel sees, one, the Son of Man being presented before the Ancient of Days in Heaven as Jesus is there. And two, seeing Jesus in all of His glory here in chapter 10. These two visions of Jesus counter all of the earthly, nightmarish, beastly visions of the coming age that Daniel would be subject to. That he would have to write about, that would wear him out and lay him out on his couch. The coming age, an age that Jesus defined Himself as becoming increasingly dark and rebellious. That's the direction it's going. Jesus said that's the direction it's going to go. He said His words, Matthew 24, 12, because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. We need a vision of Jesus. It's the only way you can handle The reality of the world in the coming age is a vision of Jesus. And Daniel got it. Now, there are those who believe the vision here in chapter 10, verses 5 through 9, is not of Jesus, but that of a great angel, a remarkable angel, a beautiful angel, perhaps Gabriel or Michael. Although when Daniel saw Gabriel before, he was just a man. He was not as glorified as this figure is in Daniel chapter 10. Michael, we haven't met yet. Perhaps this is Michael, some would say. And and they believe that because they say, you see this angel, and then all of a sudden, here he is talking to Daniel in the latter part of the chapter. 
They believe this is all one person who brings Daniel the message as well as being seen in this glorious vision. And so, believing that, they would say, those who believe this is just an angel, no demonic power could possibly withstand and hold Jesus. Because as we read down in the chapter, this guy's captured. And he's held with the prince and kings of Persia for a time. No one could do that. No, no demon could do that to Jesus. Well, let me ask you this question, just to, to beg the other side. Would Jesus ever allow himself to be captured or restrained by demonic forces? Yes. yes. In fact, you know he did. In a garden called Gethsemane. And he said to the chief priests and the elders who came out to arrest him, Luke 22:52, Have you come out with swords and clubs as you would against a robber? While I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this hour and the power of darkness are yours. And thus Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Emmanuel, God in the flesh, who came to dwell among us, actually handed over authority to the darkness. Do with me as you will. What God in any religious belief system ever did that? was ever willing to lay down His life as Jesus did. Now there are those who believe this whole passage is Jesus. That again, He's both the person in the vision and He's the messenger. And I believe actually that the indication, the indication is both. That we are seeing an angel and we are seeing Jesus. That we see Jesus first. The vision is of Jesus. We talked about this last week, and I believe it primarily because of the close comparison to Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 through 16. Read that passage, read this passage, compare the two. I also believe it because we wonder why would an angel such as this be so explicitly described in such glorious characterization, so closely compared to Jesus in the book of Revelation, if it's not Jesus Himself. And I believe then that the latter part of the chapter, starting in verse 10 on, is a messenger angel. And it's not Jesus speaking, but an angel working for Him. Well, why would you believe that? Well, it's not something new to the Scriptures. From Genesis to Revelation, we see God working in concert, in tandem with angels coming with them, dealing with them, in in partnership even, if you will. Keep your finger there and turn all the way back to Genesis chapter 18. Genesis 18, the first time we actually see this kind of partnership. Now, Now we know God set an angel at the entrance to the Garden of Eden. So we know that they're to guard that garden. But here we see for the first time God and angels hanging out together. Genesis chapter 18, verse 1. Now the Lord appeared to him, that is Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre, while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. When he lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. Now note that. So the Lord appears to him. And then we have a description of three men. Now, don't jump on that too quickly and go, Oh, wow, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. No. No, three men. Only the Son appears as a man. Only the Son throughout history and throughout Scripture comes in the presence and the appearance of a man. The Holy Spirit doesn't do that. The Father doesn't do that. The Son is the exact representation of the Father, but comes in human flesh. And so we have three men. So skip all the way down to verse 33 of Genesis 18. And he says, as soon as he had finished speaking to Abraham, the Lord departed. And Abraham returned to his place. Verse 1 of chapter 19, Now the two angels came to Sodom. In the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. So you've got two angels with the Lord Jesus. Alright? Makes sense? So Jesus comes with a couple of angel buddies and they come to talk to Abraham. Jesus and the angels working in tandem together. Same thing in the last book of Scripture, in the book of Revelation. Jesus works in tandem with an angel. He has an angel spokesman working with him. In some instances, it is Jesus speaking directly to John. It is Jesus seen by John. In other instances, it is an angel speaking the words told him by Jesus to John. Why the, the, the work together? I don't know. 
But that's what he did. Revelation 22, verse 16, he says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright and morning star. So we have scriptural evidence from Genesis to Revelation, and there are other places you can find this as well, where the Lord works with or alongside angels. He brings them in and, and together they work. See that in the resurrection, don't we? Of course, Jesus absent from the tomb, but leaves a couple of angels there to meet the women as they come to the tomb. So back in Daniel chapter 10, I believe that's what we're looking at here, what we're seeing. The first part of the chapter, we see this glorious vision, and the vision absolutely freaks Daniel out. He is trembling, and then he hears the voice of the Lord, and I think, I think peace comes, and he settles into a deep sleep. Others think he just passes out from the terror, and that's, that's possible, others have. But then there's a span of time here. The old prophet, having seen and heard from Jesus, now settles down for a long winter's nap. And then, and then a pause. And some time passes between verses 9 and 10, maybe seconds, maybe minutes, perhaps hours. But in verse 10, Daniel is awakened. He's touched by an angel, not Della Reese. <laughs> Then behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man of high esteem, understand the words that I am about to tell you and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. And that's another line, by the way, that shows a distinction between the first part of the chapter and the last part is, I have now been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling, and then he said to me, Do not be afraid, Daniel. Wait a minute. That's Gabriel's line. Do not be afraid. Isn't that what he said to Zechariah, John the Baptist's dad? Isn't that what he says to Mary? Luke chapter 1, verses 13 and verse 30. Well, we can't say for certain that this is Gabriel in Daniel chapter 10. I think it probably is, but we don't know. He's not named. This angel is not named. The reason I think it's Gabriel is that four other times in Scripture, Gabriel is sent as God's messenger of salvation to Israel. And that seems to be a very specific role for Gabriel, to be the messenger of Israel's redemption, their salvation. So I think this is probably Gabriel, although, again, we can't say for certain. But he says, do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set yourself, your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to your words. Now, this is important. So I don't want to gloss over this. We have here the key, I believe, to getting your prayers heard. You want the Lord to really hear your prayers. Not that God would turn a deaf ear to you, but there is an attitude of heart that the Lord is looking for in us. And we see it right here in Daniel. The angel says, from the moment you set your heart on understanding and on humbling yourself before your God. If you want your prayers to be heard, there's the key. Set your heart on understanding and humbling yourself before the Lord your God. What does that mean? Proverbs chapter 2, verse 3 says, If you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. If you go to God seeking understanding, how many people go to God not seeking understanding, but seeking another Black Friday sale? You know, Lord, I've got this going on in my life and I really need you to intervene and take care of this. I need you to fix what's wrong. I need you to. I need you to. And that's not seeking understanding. Understanding is a completely different mindset that says, Lord, what do you have today? Lord, what would you have me be about? Lord, help me to help me to understand your word. Lord, give me a vision for how I might serve you in my life. Now that's seeking understanding. And it's, a, it's kind of a paradigm shift because we have a tendency, even with good things, Lord, help my children to grow up strong in faith. That's a great prayer. But to seek understanding is to seek the things of the Lord, the things that matter to Him. A great example of that is the man Cornelius. First Gentile convert in the book of Acts. Cornelius, the centurion. 
And we're told in Acts chapter 10, verse 2, he was a devout man and one who feared God with all his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. This guy was an outsider. This man was not of Israel. He was not of the commonwealth of Israel. A Gentile who had no hope, Peter would later write. At about the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius! And fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, he said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Listen, your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon who is also called Peter. And that's again part of the key. To seek understanding and to humble yourself before God. Here's the difference. Don't come to the Lord with mandates. Come to the Lord with memorials. Don't come to Him thinking about the things that matter to you, but the things that matter to Him. Memorials of the things that are important to God. Memorial prayers. And so Cornelius recognized that and begins giving his alms to Israel. Supporting the Jewish people. Praying for and about them. Because they mattered to God, so they mattered to Cornelius. Cornelius was focused on God's concerns and on God's character. That's memorial praying. Praying the things that truly matter to the Lord even before we get around to the things that matter to us. And I think God wants to hear what's going on. I think He wants you to bring your petitions to Him as well. But perhaps starting with humility and the memorial of Lord what's important to you is the best way for our prayers to be heard. Cornelius' prayers rose as memorials and God remembered Cornelius. Jesus said in John 14, 13, Whatever you ask in My name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask Me anything in My name, I will do it. And so we attach in Jesus' name and figure it's a done deal. In Jesus' name, Amen. There, I said it. Covered. I know that one got through. (laughs) That's not what He's talking about. To ask something in His name is to ask something that matters to Him. Something of concern to Jesus. Something that he's focused on. And so Paul says in Philippians 3.13, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And it truly is developing a mindset that is so Christ-centered that when we pray, our first concerns are His concerns. Humbling ourselves and setting our hearts on understanding like Daniel. Now, with that understood, there is more going on here than meets the eye. And as Daniel chapter 10 continues, we get a glimpse of the unseen, angelic, spiritual realm. Before we wander in any deeper here, let me give you a few things to note about angels. Uh, If you want to know kind of some biblical concepts of angels, they're not Christmas ornaments. They're not tree toppers. If you have one, apologize, but (laughs) they're not babies. And they are not Victorian women with lacy wings. (laughs) Angels. A couple of things to note. Number one, angels are couriers. They are couriers. Psalm 103, verse 20, Bless the Lord, you His angels, mighty in strength, who perform His word, obeying the voice of His word. They bring His word. It's one of the jobs of angels. Psalm 104, verse 4, He makes the winds His messengers, flaming fire His ministers. And of course, that's quoted in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 7. The winds His messengers. The winds, that's the Hebrew word ruchot, which is the plural form of ruach. So, winds His spirits. He makes them His messengers. It's another Hebrew word for angel. If you want to note this, it's malak, M-A-L-A-K. It's the more common use of the word for angels in the Hebrew Scriptures. Daniel 6.22 uses that word referring to the angels. And that simply means messengers. Anytime you see malak, it just means messenger. Several times in the Hebrew Scriptures we see the phrase, the angel of the Lord, the malak of Yahweh. And we understand that that is likely Jesus. A Christophany. The Malach 
of Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, the, the messenger, literally. And then there's the Greek word for angel, which you're probably familiar with. It's where we get our word angel. It's angelos. Angelos, which means a divine messenger. So angels are couriers. Secondly, angels are child care professionals. Matthew chapter 18, verse 10 says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. I love that verse. That tells me that our little ones have an angel assigned to them. Which means when my little ones get hurt, I have someone to blame. (laughs) Hey, Paul says we're going to judge the angels, so I'm keeping a list. No, I'm kidding. But that our little ones, God cares so much that He has them assigned. Side note. If you wonder, well then how come difficult things or hard things or painful things happen to little ones? Well, God's got a plan. He's got something in play. And those angels are involved. And I don't understand how all of that works, but I trust my Father. And I know that He cares enough about all of our children to have angels assigned to them. Thirdly, angels are celebrators. They're celebrators. Luke chapter 15, verse 10. Jesus says, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. See, we have one person give their life to the Lord and we take them down and we baptize them in the pond and we applaud, yay! It's nothing like what's going on in heaven. I am convinced that just raucous applause and shouts of glory and praise erupt from the angels who are still trying to figure out grace. (laughs) Who were created in the presence of God to worship God and are still trying to figure out what God's doing with these humans. And so every time one of them is saved, every one of them, every time one of them turns to Jesus in faith, they just erupt in celebration. Jesus tells us, angels are the great celebrators of God. We, we read about in Job the morning stars praising God during the creation. Angels celebrating. Revelation chapter 4 verse 8 says, the four living creatures, the cherubim, Each one of them having six wings full of eyes around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. The mightiest of the angels can do nothing but worship in the presence of God. So angels are celebrators. Number four, angels are chain breakers. They are chain breakers. Acts chapter 12, we see Peter imprisoned in Jerusalem. I love the story. It says, Behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter's side and woke him up. Which I do with my kids often. Struck Peter's side, woke him up and said, Get up quickly! And his chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Gird yourself, put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and continued to follow and did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. How interesting is that? He didn't know until he was outside of the prison. And then he's knocking on the door of the believer's house. They're praying for his release. It's a wonderful story. The little Rhoda opens the door, ah, closes the door and runs back in. It's Peter! What are you talking about? It's Peter. Released a chain-breaking angel came, leads him out. He thought he was seeing a vision. He didn't think this was real. And far too often, that is how we approach the spirit realm. We really don't think it's real. I mean, yeah, biblically, great in a Bible study, kind of a thrill. We love around Christmas time to think of the angels singing in the heavens. But we don't recognize the tangible reality of the angelic and of the spiritual realm. I believe Daniel chapter 10 is among other passages here to wake us up to that, to open our eyes to it. I'm getting a bit ahead of myself, but these angels are chain breakers. Chain breakers. Angels are number five. Um, unexpected company. Unexpected company. Hebrews 13.2. Bible here. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Does that still happen today? Well, no, it can't happen today. That kind of thing can only happen in ancient times. Where do we get that? Why do we... Because we've evolved? (laughs) 
I would say, if that's the case, we have devolved. Entertaining angels unaware. That there are, that the implication is angels walking among us on the earth, and we don't even know they're angels. We're not even aware of this, Rick. You're getting weird. I'm not. It's the Bible. I think that perspective that angels are among us or that they are can be unexpected company would radically alter hospitality in many of our homes. Number six, angels are curious. They're curious. As I said before, they really want to understand grace. They're looking like this is so weird. Nothing like this has ever happened in all of eternity. 1 Peter 1.12, it says, It was revealed to them, that is the prophets of the Messiah, that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. They long to know. They're watching the prophets prophesy about Christ. They see Christ come. They see the crucifixion, the resurrection, and then they see the birth of the church. And the whole time, apparently, they're trying to get this, seeking to understand, and that's important to know, because God is explaining grace to those in the angelic and spiritual realm as much as to us in the physical realm. Again, there's more to this than what we see in our little daily lives. It's much bigger than the individual or than the group of people, or than the whole church body, or the whole, it's even bigger than the whole world. Now, at the same time, let me tell you, there's nothing more exciting or wondrous in the heavens than a sinner who repents. So it is that personal, but it's also so epic, it's beyond comprehension. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8, Paul says, To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given. To preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and, listen to this, to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. What, what Paul is saying there is that some of what is going on here is instructive in the spirit realm. That what God is doing in and among and through us and through the church is instructive for the angels. And I would even say for the demons. Instructive for those spiritual beings who can't comprehend exactly the manifold wisdom of God. God says, let me show you. Why did God create the earth? Was He lonely? No. But it is instructive to all other beings He's ever created. And what He's doing here is a massive lesson in grace and compassion and wisdom in the very nature and character of God. Both for us and for those in the spiritual realm. But listen, while angels are couriers and child care professionals and celebrators and chain breakers and curious company, they are also, number seven, combatants. And this is where it gets kind of fun. They are caught up in the conflict. Psalm 68 verse 16 says, The chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of angels. The Lord is among them as at Sinai in the holy place. And that whole picture of chariots portrays an army. And of course you know in Luke chapter 2, when the angel announced Jesus' birth to the shepherds, And we don't know if that angel was Gabriel or Harold. It was one of the two. Who announced the birth of Jesus. Luke chapter 2 verse 13. He announces it and suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom He is pleased. Again, no Victorian silky gowns. A heavenly host is described Heaven's military band, if you will. It's not some frou-frou choir. No offense to choir people. This is a militia of angels. The word host there in the Greek is stratia, where we get our word strategy. It's a military stratia, a band of soldiers. The host of heaven, a fighting group of angels glorifying God at the birth of Jesus. Now with all that in mind, watch the conflict play out. Verse 13. 
The angel is speaking to Daniel. He says, but the, I've come in response to your words, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. And then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I have been, had been left there with the kings of Persia. And now I come to give you understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision pertains to the days yet future. The prince of Persia withstood me held me captive. That word prince there in the Hebrew is Tsar. Uh, Obama's got Tsars all throughout the government. Um, sorry. Tsar means, <laughs> it means captain. It means keeper. It means principality. The principality of Persia. Three times Jesus uses this word to describe Satan, the prince of this world. John chapter 12, verse 31 Uh, John chapter 14, verse 30, and John chapter 16, verse 11. Satan is the Tsar of this world. But again, a Tsar is a captain, a keeper, a principality. For 21 days, the length of Daniel's prayer, for 21 days this angelic soldier of God was held captive by the principality called the Prince of Persia. And that's important to understand. Because a principality connects a prince or a ruler or a keeper or a captain, if you will. It connects that captain to a region. So it's not just floating around loose, but there are, there is a structure here that Scripture indicates in the angelic realm. A powerful demonic entity assigned to a physical region on the planet over a kingdom, and in this case, it's the Tsar, it's the principality of Persia. This being who is a demonic presence over Persia itself. Persia, of course, you know, is Iran today. But Persia, back in those days, didn't need nuclear power. They had the prince of Persia. prince of Persia would be a created being with spiritual authority, again, over a physical region. And we need to understand that. That's so important for us in the church to get. That angels are, and demons are, assigned to regions, to areas, to locales. Colossians 1.16 tells us, By Him all things were created, that is, by Jesus, in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. So originally, all of the spirits, all of the angels were created to serve and worship God. Of course, we could go back to Ezekiel and to Isaiah and talk about the fall of Satan and the fall of of a number of the angels with Him, perhaps as many as a third. And those angels now being what we refer to as demons. But these these angels, these, these demons have this power and the ability to rule over a region and to power or empower a nation, a government, a rule. Daniel chapter 10 squares very well with the New Testament descriptions of the angelic and demonic realm and the rank of demons and the rank of angels, a system of actual hierarchies within the spiritual realm. And so Paul writes in Ephesians 6 verse 10, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. I'm not going to get into the armaments this morning, but we really need to be familiar with those in Ephesians chapter 6. Because without the armaments of the Lord, without the full armor of God, we are not able to stand against what's happening in the spiritual realm. What does that tell you? It tells you that the spirit realm has an effect on us and has an impact on this world. And you might say, well, yeah, we know that. No, I don't know that we do. I don't know that we truly understand the dramatic impact that the demonic realm has on planet Earth. The ability of spirits to force things in the physical world to happen, to take place. And meanwhile, we in the church, and I don't mean to be negative, but I'm preaching to myself as much as anyone else. We just kind of bop along day to day, unaware of what's going on all around us. And Paul said, put on the full armor of God. If you don't, you're going to get taken out. At least you're going to be rendered useless in the battle. Gear up. And then he says, Ephesians 6.12, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood 
but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now, don't misunderstand, this is not about sensationalism. Not every zit is a demonic assault. You know? But neither are we to turn a blind eye to what's really taken place. And it is real, and it is serious. And 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, Paul says, we are not ignorant of Satan's schemes. I would add two words into that. We are not to be ignorant of Satan's schemes. As followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are to be aware of what is going on. Now we have a need with all this, and that is a need for a biblical balance to understand what is of the spiritual warfare and what is just of the everyday, to see things clearly and to have discernment. So we have a biblical balance in our hands. Read on, verse 15. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and became speechless. And behold, one who resembled a human being was touching my lips. And then I opened my mouth and spoke and said to him who was standing before me, Oh, my Lord, as a result of the vision, anguish has come upon me, and I have retained no strength. How can such a servant of my Lord talk with such as my Lord? As for me, there remains just now no strength in me, nor has any breath been left in me. Now this word Lord is not Yahweh. It is not Adonai. It is the short form Adon, which is more likened to Sir. Okay, so he's not referring to, he's not calling this angel Lord as in the Lord God. He's just saying, sir, it's, it's a, a show of, of respect. And for Daniel, now, this gaping hole has been punched into the spiritual realm and he is brought into a place of understanding that he has never been before. He's seen dreams. He's had visions. But now all of a sudden, there's this huge reality that nearly wipes him out. Contrast it to what we talked about last week. Last week we talked about Daniel in mourning. And he wasn't in mourning because of the vision. He was in mourning most likely for his people Israel. He was praying and he was crying out to the Lord. and He was seeking, again, understanding. And he was humble on his couch. And for three weeks he was literally sick in mourning and in prayer. And there was no response. But that mourning was for a different Reason Now, all of a sudden, he gets response. He's talking with this angel, and it is completely freaking him out. It is laying him low. He says, I, I don't even know what to do with this. I don't know how to handle this. All the strength is leaving me. Why is he so distressed? I submit to you, it's because he is seeing for the first time in history the reality of the spiritual warfare all around him that he didn't know was going on. That he was unaware of. That it was this tangible, this real. This is something that has got to be recognized in our lives, in our fellowship, and in the church today. And there are those who would say, well, I read this present darkness. You know, back in the 80s. And others say, well, I did better. I read the follow-up book, Piercing the Darkness, by Frank Peretti, the two fictional bestsellers back in the 80s. And I would say, if you read those books, fantastic. Good. They're great reads. If you haven't read them, you should read them. They're just amazing, a little frightening fictional stories that open up and kind of give a view of what might be happening in the spiritual realm while things are happening in the physical realm. But understand, while Frank Peretti, in writing those books, did was used, I believe, by the Lord to crack open a little more view for people in the 80s, how easily do we just settle back into the physical world? And kind of forget about it. We go on to the next novel. We head out to the next shopping day. We go to the next church service. And, and we kind of let these things fall. And you might say, well, well, why does it matter? And there are a lot of Christians with that mentality. I hope it's not you. The mentality that says, why does it matter whether I not, or not I know all these things? You know, there are those who say, why does it matter whether or not I know when or how Jesus is coming? Just as long as He comes, that's good enough for me. You know, why does it matter that I be made aware of the spiritual warfare that's going on around me? Why do I need to know this? I'll tell you why. It matters because this is my war. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, this is your war. This is not someone else's war. This is not someone else's battle to fight. I think that's the big question that, that people are asking in the world today. Is this our war or not? 
Afghanistan, is that our war? Iraq? Libya? Syria? Iran? Are these our wars? Are we supposed to be engaged in these things? Do they involve us? And in the case of the spiritual warfare that the Bible describes ongoing, this is our war. And we need to engage. Now hold that thought for a moment. Who is this Michael of which the angel speaks in verse 13? Verse 13, Behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, he's called. And of course, Jude, verse 9, calls him Michael the archangel. I love the verse. Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. It's another one of those amazing verses where just for a moment, it's like, okay, uh, Michael had an argument with Satan. And then back to something else. Wait, wait, can we go back to that? (laughs) I want to know more about that. I want to understand. So who is this Michael? The word archangel, the Greek is archangelos. And it simply means chief angel. So again, we're talking about ranks. There are levels of angels. There are levels of devils. (laughs) And so Michael is a chief angel, but... He's a chief angel who understands his rank. I find that fascinating. A glorious, powerful angel, and yet, he doesn't call down Satan. He calls upon the name of the Lord to rebuke Satan. The Lord rebuke you. It's not about me, the great chief Michael says. It's about the Lord. So he understands his place in this battle. In Daniel chapter 12, a couple of chapters over, look over there, we understand, we learn that he is a great prince. The word is Sar. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. Now at that time, Michael the great prince who stands over guard, or stands guard over the sons of your people will arise. And there will be a time of distress, distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. So there's something coming. A battle involving Michael. He's going to stand up in the very end at the time of the rescue of Israel, Daniel's people Israel. He's going to duke it out with the devil. What did the angelic messenger, back in chapter 10, who was sent to Daniel, what did he need to break free from the demonic principality of Persia? He needed Michael, right? Needed Michael's help. Michael had to go down and wherever this was, go to him and help break him loose. He needed more power than he had himself. How did he get Michael's help? And here's the key. Daniel's prayer. It was because of Daniel's prayer that Michael was then enabled to go and help. What if Daniel had stopped praying before the 21st day? What if he had given up on day 20? What if two weeks in, he just said, this is getting me nowhere, it's obviously not worth it, I'm just, I'm done. What if two days of prayer, Daniel said, I'm not getting any response. I guess I'll try something else. Maybe I'll try psychology. (laughs) Maybe I'll go a different route. 21 days, he prays and he prays and he prays and he prays. And for all of his mourning and all of his sorrow and all of his weariness, Daniel continued to engage in faithful prayer. He didn't stop. Why? Because Daniel understood what we're saying this morning. This was not someone else's battle to fight. This was Daniel's battle. This mattered to him. This was for his people. And he belonged to God. And whatever God was doing, Daniel had to be part of that. Whether he fully understood it or not, this was Daniel's war. And again, it's your war and it's my war if we truly belong to Jesus. Again, according to the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 6, we have just two offensive weapons. He talks about the different defensive armaments, two offensive weapons, the sword of the Word and prayer. That's it. That's what we go to battle with. The sword of the Word of God and prayer. But understand also what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 10 verse 4. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. In other words, we can say, well, all we got is the Bible and, and, our, and, our, and our prayers. 
Or we can say, we have the power of the Word and we have the power of prayer which is divinely powerful and which enables God's people to literally destroy fortresses, to take down strongholds. That is, as much as the demonic realm can impact this world, guess what? We can impact the spiritual realm. Our prayers, our understanding and our preaching of the Word can have a dramatic fighting back impact. We can, as Les likes to put it, we can take ground in the spirit realm. We can push back in our prayers. One of my prayers since we started the bridge a decade ago has been that the Lord would push back the darkness. Because this is a dark place on the planet. And it has been. God called Rod and Barb Gilmore to buy a disgusting farmhouse that needed a lot of work. And all their family and friends thought they were nuts. I know them well now. Love them dearly. They are nuts. <laughs> what makes you say that, Rick? Look around. We're here. And they allow this to go on every week. The pushing back of the darkness. And it was as simple as, as a family hearing a call. As simple as God just starting to draw a few people here and there together. And, and you guys remember that? I mean, we, we used to talk a lot about that, about pushing back and just praying back darkness. And I, my great desire is that our prayers would continue that. Well, why do you want to push back darkness? So that non-believers can be free to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. So people can get saved who right now are, like, like this angel was, captured by the enemy. Held by the enemy. And so we fight back. And we push back. And it's one of the least, I think, practiced things in the church. We think, well, I, I want to be of use in the church, so I want to sign up for this ministry or that ministry. And the Lord's saying, I'm looking for people to be in the Word and prayer. You can quietly by yourself, maybe you're an introvert. Great. Sit alone in your house and pray. And pray against the darkness. And pray the will of God. And pray the character of God. And pray the concerns of God. And be about the things that matter to Him. And you will have a huge impact on what's going on in this world. So what do you do when you're weary of prayer? When you're just tired. You fight on. You keep on praying. You don't stop. What about when someone you love, someone close to you, falls in the battle? You pick up their prayer shawl, as it were, and you pray on. And you keep praying. But what about when you get wounded? Perhaps by other people. And here's another little spiritual insight for you. When other human beings wound you, even within the church, chances are there's something behind that that is not them. Because our battle, our fight, is not against flesh and blood. Yeah, but that guy's such a jerk. Yeah, did you see the demon hanging off of him? <laughs> Seriously, when you're wounded, what do you do? Wallow in it? No, you get back down on your knees and you fight on because this is our fight. This is our battle. How do I do that when I'm weary? Verse 18. Then this one with human appearance touched me again and strengthened me. He said, O man of high esteem, that's the second time he has said that, O man of high esteem, do not be afraid. Peace be with you. Take courage and be courageous. Now as soon as he spoke to me, I received strength and said, May my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Same thing happened to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus fervently praying, his, his sweat becoming, Luke tells us, like drops of blood. We're told in Luke 22:43, an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And I don't know... Uh, Exactly what that means. What does that look like? Perhaps that there's there's a spiritual empowerment that's coming in those situations with both Daniel and then with Jesus in the garden. That the angel's doing something spiritually to encourage. But I think it may be more simple than that. Daniel hearing, O man of high esteem, dear one to the Lord, you matter. You matter. Stand up, Daniel. Take courage. We're fighting this fight together. The end is good. There is a glorious conclusion. 
The strength comes in the encouragement. Listen. The strength comes in the encouragement of our value to the Lord. When you begin to recognize your value to God, or when perhaps you've forgotten and you're reminded of that glorious value, just to hear someone say, Rick, you know how much God loves you? How much you matter to Him? Few things encourage me more than that. In fact, I can't think of a one. And for you to hear, do you know Jesus loves you? You know, Pat, do you know how much He adores you? You take that thought home. My Jesus loves me. And in the value of, of, of Jesus' love, in the esteem of the Father, maybe I've been knocked down in battle. Maybe I am lying there wounded. Maybe that's you this morning. Let me remind you again, you are highly esteemed by the Lord. And He looks down on your, you know, your tiny little prayers that you think don't matter. And He goes, listen to her. Look at Him. He's fighting the fight. As Paul said, the good fight. You may not feel like you matter to anyone else. I'll tell you what, everybody in the world might turn their back on you, but you matter greatly and eternally to Jesus Christ. And there's your strength. The Bible says, the joy of the Lord is my strength. Guess who the joy of the Lord is? It's you. You are the joy of the Lord. Draw strength from that. Ephesians 1.5 says, In love He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will to the praise of the glory of His grace which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. Verse 20, quickly. Then He said, Do you understand why I came to you? But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. So I am going forth, and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. So another principality will come in with the new kingdom that's going to conquer Persia. However, I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of truth. Yet there is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces except Michael, your prince. Now, chapter 11 and 12, which we'll get into beginning Wednesday night and finish probably next Sunday... In these two chapters, the angel reveals what is inscribed in the writing of the truth. And what's marvelous about that is you're holding it in your hands. You have the inscription of the writing of truth in your hands. And so this now is going to be revealed to Daniel. In Daniel's day, however, the principalities of the nations were flexing some big muscle. Again, Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome. Big nations with big principalities coming to fight. And I read the conclusion of chapter 10. And he says, Yet there is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces except Michael, your prince. And I I have to ask the question, why? Why wasn't there anyone but Michael to help this particular angel fight? When we know Jesus says, I could have called 10,000, 12,000 angels... I could have called on the legions. So we know they're out there. Why is only Michael there to stand firmly with this angel against the demonic forces? Maybe because no one but Daniel was praying. This is amazing to me, but I believe it's a biblical truth. God binds His interventions to our intercessions. He binds His interventions, the working of His will. He has for His purposes and his, in His desire, He has connected His work to our praying. Amen. Now, He could do it without us, absolutely, but He has chosen to connect it. To say, I will do as much as you're willing to pray for. I will release as many angels to the fight as you are lifting up prayers to Me. He's not inhibiting His power. He's inspiring His people to pray. If you look through the Scriptures at all the things God does just to get us to shut our eyes and open our mouths in prayer, it's remarkable. God wants us praying. And so He has all these different methods to pull us in and say, let's spend some time together. Get on your knees. Let's work this out together. I want you to hear my voice. Come to me. And so He connects the two. He's looking for a few good men and women. And he found one in Daniel. And Michael 
is released and Michael, the archangel, stood with this angel even as Daniel knelt in prayer. Fast forward to the end. Daniel chapter 12, again, we read the verse. It shows us Michael rising up, standing up against Satan in a final heavenly war. Listen to it described by John in Revelation 12, verse 7. And there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven, and the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I wonder if perhaps the reason Michael and his angels now at the end have the power to throw down the dragon and his demons is because God's people will be massively engaged in prayer. Think about when this happens. The description in Revelation chapter 12 is midway through the tribulation according to the time, the chronology of the book of Revelation. Halfway through the tribulation, there's this massive battle and finally Satan's visa to heaven is revoked. He has no more access whatsoever. He and his angels are completely thrown down. They arrive on planet earth and they go berserk. Ballistic. But it happens as the saints are praying. And I believe both saints in heaven, as the church is home, has been home, and is raptured, is praying to the Lord, and is happening among the saints on earth, in Israel especially, who realize what's going on. And all of this massive prayer power is rising up, and all of the angels with Michael, now the massive army of them, defeat Satan and his, and his demons. Because God's people pray. One commentator said this, Many churches today are marked by a well-organized, heavily staffed, and adequately financed impotency. I thought that was excellent. Many churches today are marked by a well-organized, heavily staffed, and adequately financed impotency. Paul says in Ephesians 6.18, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petitions for all the saints. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, Paul says, pray without ceasing. Jude verse 20, the disciple says, Beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Pray, for that is our great weapon. And this is our war. One final question. Are the princes of Persia and Greece still in play today? I think they are. I I do. Although, when I jotted down that question, the first thing that popped in my mind is, well, the prince of Greece isn't doing so well. He's certainly weakened. And then I thought about Persia, Iran. You know what's interesting? It is curious that for all their big mouth threats, Persia has remained unable to rise to her former glory. She's never been. Iran has never been what Persia in the past was. Has never been able to climb back up to that. Why is that? And I would submit to you that it's because her princes have been disarmed. Colossians 2.15 When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. That is, through Jesus. Jesus disarmed the principalities at the crucifixion. Suddenly, these demonic beings with great claws and great teeth are now toothless and armless and cannot do what they perhaps could have done before because of the power of the cross. My friends, that's a game changer. That's when it all Turn the corner. The sacrifice of Jesus at Calvary, because of that, we pray against an armless foe. That should be good news. We don't pray trembling. We don't pray in fear of perhaps what might happen to our lives because we begin to engage in the battle. No, no. our commander is the Lord Jesus Christ. And our commander gave up his life at Calvary and was raised from the dead and says, you know what, you may fall in this battle, but you will be raised to new life. And you will live forever with me. Therefore, fight. Fight the battle. We have the cross of Jesus, as the old hymn says, going on before. 
And with that encouragement, know this, Paul says, Romans 8.38, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Lord Jesus, we pray that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened so that we will know what is the hope of your calling, what are the riches of the glory of your inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of your power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of your might, which you brought about in Christ when you raised Him from the dead and seated Him at at your right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority, and power and dominion and every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come and you put all things in subjection under Jesus' feet and gave Jesus as head over all things to the church which is your body the fullness of Christ Jesus who fills all in all and Lord as we hear those words we pray them We come under the covering and the protection of them. And we trust You for all the power necessary to accomplish Your will. Father, as we learn how to pray against spiritual forces, may we have the humility uh, both of Daniel and of Michael to know our place in this battle. We stand behind the name of Jesus Christ. And we pray the glory of Jesus. And Lord, we pray that You would push back the darkness by Your power. And we ask, Lord Jesus, that You will open up space here on North Whidbey Island to spread out, Lord, that people would hear the message of the Gospel and be saved. We pray, Father, that You will invigorate us as a people. That You will challenge us in the way we pray. Teach us, Lord. As your disciples ask you, teach us to pray and to be a people of prayer. We have the sword of the Word in one hand, but Lord, we need to be lifting up both hands in prayer. And Father, we pray for your victory and your coming in glory, Jesus. And we look to be called home in Jesus' name. Amen.